about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Exodus 32, starting at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was no long, so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed them and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a, of a calf, uh, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented, presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, this is with it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Here ends the reading. Hi all, my name is Anthony. If I don't know you, please say hello afterwards. Tonight I'm reading 1 Corinthians 9 on page 1135, sorry, 1134. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize. 
run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the same from, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Our great God and Father, you are loving and you are kind and merciful and holy. And we pray now as we consider your word, as you speak to us, and as you long for us to love you wholly and completely, that you would so remake us that we don't only do what you love, but we love what you love. And we pray this for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, God in his kindness has made it happen that in the week when the Olympics is happening everywhere, uh, we're going to talk about training and the Olympics and things like that. Paul has been making some Olympic references, and that's very kind of God, don't you think? Uh, today we are thinking about training and what it is and what it takes to train and tame the human soul. One of the things that's been uh, bugging me a little bit, I've been thinking about as I've been watching the Olympics, 
is that there is just such different training required for each event. I mean, a gymnast has one type of training, that, and I don't think I could even do the training to get going, uh, compared to, say, a weightlifter. And if you trained as an archer and tried to be a gymnast or a weightlifter, you would be a failure, right? You have to know what you want. You have to know what you need to train in order to succeed. There's this whole realm of specificity and different things you need to know. So, if you were to train the human soul, how would you train? And what would you train? Maybe like Rene Descartes, you would say, well, I think, therefore I am. Train my thinking and you train my soul. I could detail for you, though, unfortunately, the vast majority of contradictory and illogical things I've done today. <laughs> there are many and numerous. You can ask Cass later. Perhaps it would be better to say, maybe, I emoji, therefore I am. My capacity to express my emotions through an, an animated object uh, you know, is vastly superior to animals. And if I can emoji correctly and emotion correctly, then I can train my soul. Well, our emotions are good, but they're kind of flipping, aren't they? You kind of move around a lot. You can't seem to control them all the time. Maybe it's better to say, I connect, therefore I am. I relate, therefore I am. I, I'm a human, and I, I love relationship, and that's what defines me. I get my relationship right, and you can train my soul. But isn't it true that we hurt often the ones we love the most and the ones we're connected to the most? What's that about? Maybe it's better to say, I'm physical, therefore I am. I move, therefore I am. I have a body, therefore I am. This body of mine. But even our bodies tend to betray us, don't they? No, I think uh, for this and for this passage that Paul throws to us today, we have to go to the deep spiritual truth behind the latest Snickers app. Well, you kind of get the point, I guess. <laughs> Cranky old man gets given a Snickers and miraculously turned back into a human. Now, the point of this is incredible and is insightful despite the fact those commercials are kind of insane. It is not, I think, therefore I am, I emoji, therefore I am, I relate, therefore I am, or I'm physical, therefore I am. It is, I desire, therefore I am. You're not yourself when you're hungry. I crave, therefore I am. I desire, therefore I am. If you want to understand the human soul, you have to understand desire. Desire is the thing we justify with our thoughts, the thing that moves our emotions, the reason why we hurt those we love, and the reason why our bodies can betray us. I crave, therefore I am. That is the human soul. That is the human predicament. The human soul was made to desire and love God. And it is the thing that betrays us most when we don't. What Paul wants to say to the Corinthians in this passage is that the thing they desire most wants to swallow them whole. The thing they desire most wants to swallow them whole. So we're going to uh, think about 1 Corinthians 9 and, and 10 as kind of a training regime. What I want to think about is why do we need to train what do we need to train, and how do we train? And we're going to think about the soul and desire. First of all, why do we train? Now, in this passage at the beginning, uh, it says something that is kind of disturbing to me, actually. 
I don't know if you picked it up. It's in verse 27. No, says Paul, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I don't know what you think about that. This is the Apostle Paul saying that if he does not train, if he doesn't beat his body into submission, then he could be disqualified for the prize. He could lose his inheritance. He could lose the blessings of the gospel. Now, Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He wrote Romans. You know how smart you have to be and how spiritually insightful you have to be to write Romans? He is the most prolific and successful church planter in all of history. How is it that he could be disqualified for the prize? Do you see why I find that terrifying? There's something about Paul's self and soul that he thinks puts him at risk. There's a threat. And if he doesn't train, he could lose everything. The rest of that section is filled with these athletic metaphors. He says, don't you know that in a race, the runners run so that they get the prize? And what he's describing there is this full vein popping beast mode operating full throttle running advance in a race. He's describing the effort of a runner to win at cost to everyone else to win the prize. And that's the kind of effort that he sees himself putting in in relation to the gospel. He just talked about throwing all his freedom after the gospel in 1 Corinthians 9, the bit before we looked at last week. And he sees himself as this athlete. And as part of that in verse 25, it involves this strict training. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. The word he's using is describing the pressing down of desire after a goal. Now, in God's providence, again, as I was writing, the day I was writing this sermon, a friend took me out interval training and made me, you probably know who this is, uh, he made me run a fast kilometer and then, then a slow kilometer. And I thought this was going to be okay, but I f- had forgotten about training and about pushing yourself. Because I take these leisurely runs with Kath, which is fine, and we chat and we hang out, and I pray and, you know, all these kind of things. But when you're training, you have to focus. I remember going out um, on this run, and, and I'm doing this, this really fast K, and my brain's like, I've got to write the sermon, I've got to do the car in, and I'm, I'm, and I'm like, no, focus. Focus on your body. Focus on your breathing. Focus on your legs. Focus. When you're training, you teach your body to push away other desires because you're going after something bigger, something greater. And that's what Paul is describing here. This pushing down of desire after a bigger goal. And he's not talking about a golden crown or a crown that will not last in 25, but one that will last forever. He's talking about training your soul in light of the kingdom to come. That's what he thinks is necessary. But the question is, why, Paul, chill out a little bit? This is all a little bit full on, you know? Why are you so worried? Like, you wrote Romans. You should chill out a little bit. But what Paul understands in the first bit of chapter 10 
as he's seen through the whole of Jewish history in the Bible, he's seen the history of the human heart. And that the human heart would rather run to anything than continue to love its maker. What he does in 1 to 4 is something quite bizarre. He, he talks about the similarity between us after Jesus and the Jews before Jesus. It's quite an interesting little move, actually. He talks in verse 2 about how, you know, Moses kind of baptized the Israelites. He led them through the Red Sea and there was a cloud in front. That was like their baptism moment, the same as when you were a kid and you got dribble on your forehead, that kind of thing. And, you know, you guys eat communion, you know, the wafers and stuff. And, you know, in the desert, when the Israelites were in the desert, there were wafers on the ground when they woke up in the morning, heavenly food from God to sustain them. You know, they ate the same spiritual food. And, and Moses whacked a rock and water came out and they got spiritual drink too, just like your communion. They're the same as you, Paul says. Though you think they might be different to you, apparently they lived in some way the same spiritual reality. It says in verse 4, For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Just an aside for the moment, that sounds weird, doesn't it? You kind of think of Jesus hiding at a rock, getting whacked by a rod. But what he's talking about here is in the Old Testament, the rock was the name for God in his steadiness and faithfulness. And what happens in the New Testament when we see that the Lord Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and is God, that the rock that supplies the needs of God's people, the unfailing one, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And people in the Old Testament, as the people in the New Testament, lived a similar spiritual reality. They're the same as you, Paul is trying to say. And do you know what happened to them? Verse 5, God was not pleased with them, and their bodies are scattered over the desert. Paul looks at the history of the human heart and the Jewish people and says, they're the same as you, and that God didn't even let them get into the land. There's something at stake here. Your inheritance, your place in the kingdom, there's a threat inside you in the human heart that you've inherited from your ancestors. And so you've got to train like an athlete. That's his why. That's why we should train. But the question now is, as we narrow in and we think about this, is, well, what are we training? What is it that needs training? Paul goes on in verse 6 to 11 to kind of fill out this idea of what the Israelite, happened to the Israelites in the desert and why it is that they died. And have a look at verse 6. It says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And again in 11, these things happened to them as examples. Paul says, you know, this whole, the whole Old Testament for us is, is a set of types and examples. It's a whole history lesson in the way you operate as a human. And the core thing is this. These examples are so that we don't set our hearts on evil things. Literally, it says, so that we don't desire the evil things that they desired. They're examples to show us that the thing that needs training are our desires, are our heart, are our longings, are our cravings. And as you look at the list in verses 6 to 11 of the events that uh, Paul talks about, they're all pretty ordinary, aren't they? He talks about eating and drinking and sex. They're all just good desires, right? But the reality for the Israelites is that where they went wrong is their good desires went into overdrive. Their good things became God things. 
and led them into ruin. You see, the first example in verse 7 of the Israelites, right after they, uh, they're brought out of Egypt and they're in the desert at Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up uh, to the mountain and they're kind of hanging out going, well, Moses isn't coming back. We better get a God to lead us. And so they make a calf. You know, it was just moments ago that God led them miraculously, incredibly, the God they should love. And their hearts are turning straight away, away from him and on to a golden calf. And then again in verse 8, there's this moment in Numbers when the Israelites are in the desert and they meet the Moabites and they start sleeping with the Moabite women and start worshipping the God of Baal in this massive feast. Their good desires of sex and wanting food and drink lead them into idolatry of something that isn't God. Their good desires take over. They go into overdrive and they cause a malfunction in their hearts. Later on, it talks about them grumbling in the desert and being killed by snakes and by the destroying angel. All the way through Numbers, you hear the Israelites complaining about this silly spiritual bread from heaven that just keeps appearing. It's so bland. And this water that keeps miraculously coming from rocks. I mean, how boring is that? We should go back to Egypt because the meat and the food were better there. God, can't you do better than this? And they grumble against God. It says in Psalm 78 that they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. Again and again and again, the good desires of the human heart are redirected away from God and on to something else. That is at the heart of what idolatry is. Loving the good thing instead of the God who gave it. Now what you have to understand about this is that your desires are trained daily. Daily they are being directed by the stories of your culture, of our culture. This was, uh, the best example I could think of recently was in the, in the, the show Suits. Anyone? Oh, some, yeah, some shout-out. Yeah, that's good. Uh, in case you don't know, here's a horrible summary. There's a, there's a great lawyer and a phony lawyer, right? And they're friends, and they work together. That's the awful summary. And in the second season of Suits, the phony lawyer and his love interest, are ha- their whole lives are mess, right? Career-wise, family-wise, relationally-wise, everything's a complete mess. And you get to the last episode of the season, right? The whole story's come to an end. And, and nothing is resolved, None of the problems are resolved at all. The season ends. The resolution it gives is the two getting together in the office. Now think about that for a second. Because it's a masterpiece of storytelling. That's why I like suits. It's good storytelling. But here's what the story says. Your life might be a mess. Your career, your relationships, your family, everything. But sexual intimacy can fix it. It can give you the comfort you need, the success you don't have, the significance you don't have, the approval you long for, and the control you seek. See, it's a story that directs our good desire away from the God who gave us that desire and onto something else. And daily... These stories are teaching our hearts and our souls to love good things rather than the God who made us and who has redeemed us. And so the thing that needs training are the desires of the human heart. 
the way uh, Augustine talked about it. He spent a lot of time thinking about this. And he said, you know, the problem isn't like we have some substance in us we need to get out. It's not like part of us is evil and part of us is good. We're made good by God. All our desires are good. It's just that they go into overdrive. Our loves get disordered. He said once, my weight is my love. Wherever I go, it carries me. Whatever I love the most, whatever I desire the most, is what rules me. And so the question I think you need to ask tonight, and this is a question I ask myself, is what is it in your heart? What desires has the culture taught you that you need rather than your maker and your redeemer? Here's three questions I ask myself to work this out. I find these the most helpful. First of all, what makes you angry or sad when you don't get it? You know that moment when you get really angry, really sad, real fast, and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Interesting moment. What is that saying about what you long for? Or how about, where does your money go without thinking? What's the automatic purchase? Without thinking. And thirdly, where do your thoughts drift when you're alone? See, those three questions, your emotions, your money, your thought, your thought life, kind of give you a picture of the kind of stuff that's ruminating in your heart, the kind of stories that are echoing in the chamber of your soul, and what's being directed. And as you look at those things, you start to realize, actually, I'm looking for, for, for in these things, the things that Jesus gives me. Jesus is supposed to give me approval and comfort and security. He makes my life significant. He secures my eternity and turns aside the wrath of God and gives me forgiveness. But I'm, I'm turning over to this instead. Important moment of identification. That thing is the thing that needs training in your heart. That's the frailty that puts you at risk. So we know why we train and we know what we're training. The question is, how do you train it? What do you do with that? And Paul has some interesting things to say to us here, I think. Three things I want to tell you about how to train. First one is, you've got to take off your cape. Have a look at verse 12. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You see, the reality of the Corinthians that we get from the whole of the letter is that they felt that they had so been given the Spirit of God and so been called into Christ's kingdom that they were now impervious to anything. And so they'd walk into all the temples of all the different gods and eat whatever food they wanted and did whatever they wanted because they thought, well, we're untouchable now, right? Like, God's in us. Like, it can't get better than that, you know? So they were kind of walking around with capes like superheroes, thinking nothing's going to touch me now. What Paul says to them is that, no, you don't get it. You're not, you're not above that. Look at, the, look at the history of the human heart. Look at the Jewish people. Look at, look at this. You're not a superhero, Take off your cape. Stop it fluttering in the wind behind you. 
Your heart is not immune from the frailty of the human race and our longing for anything but our maker and our redeemer. He says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Temptation comes to us all. You're struggling with sexual temptation. Welcome to humanity. You're struggling with thanklessness and pride and addiction. Hello, human. Welcome. We've been here for a while. See, for Paul, the problem is not that we are tempted, that our desires are pulled back and forth. The problem is that for the Corinthians is that they don't see it happening. They're unaware of it. The danger is not being aware of the frailty of your heart and not seeing the threat. When you take off your cape, you admit that you are frail. And the questions we just asked are true of me, as they are of you. It doesn't matter if you're in ministry or you've been lifelong in a church or whatever. All of us have frail hearts. The way I take off my cape uh, is to talk to a friend I know who prays for me more than anyone I know. And he's the one who I admit the answers to the questions that I told you, the frailties of my heart. And I take off my cape and I say, listen, this is not okay in here. This is malfunctioning, just like the rest of us. Can you pray for me? Because we are all frail. Take off your cape. But the second thing Paul says to do is flee. You get that in verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. God is faithful in verse 13. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. What he says is, is you've got to get away from this. You've got to get away from the things that tempt your heart. You've got to get out of there right away. Like Joseph, we talked about him a few weeks ago. But what I love about fleeing and the language of fleeing is it is inherently about powerlessness, isn't it? You run away from stuff you can't get a hold of and you can't control and things that have you beat. You flee from them. Fleeing is an emission of powerlessness. And did you notice here that it doesn't say that, you know, in the end you'll be faithful. It says God is faithful. And it's not that, oh, and you'll find a way out under temptation. It says, no, he will provide a way out so you can stand up. We flee away from whatever it is that is tempting our heart to the God who is actually powerful enough to redirect our heart. Because our faithfulness insufficient and full holes but his isn't and his power isn't and so we flee from that thing to him and admit our helplessness and lean not on our power but his power and his provision and his faithfulness so we take off our cape and we flee but I think there's a third thing here and this is a bit further back in the passage but I think it's important. And I, I've been thinking about this, and I think, I think often with, as Christians, we're, we're good at, we kind of got a good defensive game. We're good at fleeing. We're good at running away, I think, a lot of the time. But I don't know if our offense is as good. You know, we're, we're not so good at the offense. And I think what this passage, in a really interesting way, is leading us to is that actually what you need to do is drink from the rock. Christ who accompanies you. 
in the spirit. You see, the way to train desire isn't to tell you something, tell yourself to desire something less. You have to desire something more. And it's when you desire that thing more that all the little things fall into their place. And when we drink from the rock, when we drink from the reality of Christ crucified, from his death on our behalf, for the power in his cross and resurrection, when we fix our eyes on the comfort that he gives rather than what we can get from things in this world, from the security he gives us in the world to come rather than the money and the things in this world, from the approval that he gives us that no human can give us, when we drink from these things, our hearts start to long for him. Our desire starts to be for him. And all the other things fall away. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, none other than the crucified, Jesus Christ himself, he is by me and in me, and therefore temptation besets me as it beset him. Against this power, the power of desire breaks up into nothingness, for here it is conquered. It is the crucified and risen Jesus who is the one who can redirect your heart who the one who can renew your heart. And though there is threat in you, there is no threat in him. His heart is perfect in a way ours could never be. And yet he willingly took the wrath that our hearts deserve to implant his to us. And when the Father looks at us, he sees not our wayward heart, but Christ's perfect and we are to face temptation and desire, not in our strength, not in our power, but in His. He is beside us and in us. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, You know our hearts. You see the reality in us. But we know, like Paul, that we are frail. And Father, you could name that thing in each of our hearts. You could name it. But we know that in the Lord Jesus, you see his perfection rather than our failure. And so, Father, we come and we drink from the cross. We drink from his forgiving love and ask you to remake us to love and long for you. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.